0: Part six of Timaeus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Timaeus by Plato, translated by Benjamin Jowett. Part six. Timaeus continues. The most important of the affections, which concern the whole body, remains to be considered. That is, the cause of pleasure and pain in the perceptions of which I have been speaking, and in all other things which are perceived by sense through the parts of the body, and have both pains and pleasures attendant on them. Let us imagine the causes of every affection, whether of sense or not, to be of the following nature, remembering that we have already distinguished between the nature which is easy and which is hard to move... For this is the direction in which we must hunt the prey which we mean to take. A body which is of a nature to be easily moved, on receiving an impression, however slight, spreads abroad the motion in a circle, the parts communicating with each other, until at last, reaching the principle of mind, they announce the quality of the agent. But a body of the opposite kind, being immobile and not extending to the surrounding region, merely receives the impression and does not stir any of the neighbouring parts, and since the parts do not distribute the original impression to other parts, it has no effect of motion on the whole animal, and therefore produces no effect on the patient. This is true of the bones and hair and other more earthy parts of the human body, whereas what was said above relates mainly to sight and hearing, because they have in them the greatest amount of fire and air now we must conceive of pleasure and pain in this way an impression produced in us contrary to nature and violent if sudden is painful and again the sudden return to nature is pleasant but a gentle and gradual return is imperceptible and vice versa on the other hand the impression of sense which is most easily produced is most readily felt but is not accompanied by pleasure or pain Such, for example, are the affections of the sight, which, as we said above, is a body naturally uniting with our body in the daytime, for cuttings and burnings and other affections which happen to the sight do not give pain, nor is there pleasure when the sight returns to its natural state, but the sensations are clearest and strongest according to the manner in which the eye is affected by the object, and itself strikes and touches it there is no violence either in the contraction or dilation of the eye but bodies formed of larger particles yield to the agent only with a struggle and then they impart their motions to the whole and cause pleasure and pain pain when alienated from their natural conditions and pleasure when restored to them things which experience gradual withdrawings and emptyings of their nature and great and sudden replenishments fail to perceive the emptying but are sensible of the replenishment and so they occasion no pain but the greatest pleasure to the mortal part of the soul as is manifest in the case of perfumes but things which are changed all of a sudden and only gradually and with difficulty return to their own nature have effects in every way opposite to the former as is evident in the case of burnings and cuttings of the body thus we have discussed the general affections of the whole body and the names of the agents which produce them and now i will endeavour to speak of the affections of particular parts and the causes and agents of them as far as i am able in the first place let us set forth what was omitted when we were speaking of juices concerning the affections peculiar to the tongue these too like most of the other affections appear to be caused by certain contractions and dilations but they have besides more of roughness and smoothness than is found in other affections for whenever earthy particles enter into the small veins which are the testing instruments of the tongue reaching to the heart and fall upon the moist delicate portions of flesh when as they are dissolved they contract and dry up the little veins they are astringent if they are rougher but if not so rough then only harsh. Those of them which are of an absturgent nature, and purge the whole surface of the tongue, if they do it in excess, and so encroach as to consume some part of the flesh itself, like potash and soda, are all termed bitter. But the particles which are deficient in the alkaline quality, and which cleanse only moderately, are called salt." and having no bitterness or roughness, are regarded as rather agreeable than otherwise. Bodies which share in and are made smooth by the heat of the mouth, and which are inflamed, and again in turn inflame that which heats them, and which are so light that they are carried upwards to the sensations of the head, and cut all that comes in their way, by reason of these qualities in them, are all termed pungent, but when these same particles, refined by putrefaction, enter into the narrow veins and are duly proportioned to the particles of earth and air which are there they set them whirling about one another and while they are in a whirl cause them to dash against and enter into one another and so form hollows surrounding the particles that enter which watery vessels of air for a film of moisture sometimes earthy sometimes pure is spread around the air are hollow spheres of water and those of them which are pure are transparent, and are called bubbles, while those composed of the earthy liquid, which is in a state of general agitation and effervescence, are said to boil or ferment. Of all these affections the cause is termed acid. And there is the opposite affection arising from an opposite cause, when the mass of entering particles, immersed in the moisture of the mouth, is congenial to the tongue, and smooths and oils over the roughness and relaxes the parts which are unnaturally contracted, and contracts the parts which are relaxed, and disposes them all according to their nature, that sort of remedy of violent affections is pleasant and agreeable to every man, and has the name sweet. But enough of this. The faculty of smell does not admit of differences of kind, for all smells are of a half-formed nature, and no element is so proportioned as to have any smell the veins about the nose are too narrow to admit earth and water and too wide to detain fire and air and for this reason no one ever perceives the smell of any of them but smells always proceed from bodies that are damp or putrefying or liquefying or evaporating and are perceptible only in the intermediate state when water is changing into air and air into water and all of them are either vapor or mist That which is passing out of air into water is mist, and that which is passing from water into air is vapor, and hence all smells are thinner than water and thicker than air. The proof of this is that when there is any obstruction to the respiration, and a man draws in his breath by force, then no smell filters through, but the air without the smell alone penetrates wherefore the varieties of smell have no name, and they have not many or definite and simple kinds, but they are distinguished only as painful and pleasant, the one sort irritating and disturbing the whole cavity which is situated between the head and the navel, and the other having a soothing influence, and restoring the same region to an agreeable and natural condition. In considering the third kind of sense, hearing, we must speak of the causes in which it originates. We may in general assume sound to be a blow which passes through the ears, and is transmitted by means of the air, the brain, and the blood, to the soul, and that hearing is the vibration of this blow, which begins in the head and ends in the region of the liver. The sound which moves swiftly is acute, and the sound which moves slowly is grave, and that which is regular is equable and smooth, and the reverse is harsh. A great body of sound is loud, and a small body of sound the reverse. Respecting the harmonies of sound I must hereafter speak. There is a fourth class of sensible things, having many intricate varieties, which must now be distinguished. They are called by the general name of colors, and are a flame which emanates from every sort of body, and has particles corresponding to the sense of sight. I have spoken already, in what has preceded of the causes which generate sight, and in this place it will be natural and suitable to give a rational theory of colors, of the particles coming from other bodies which fall upon the sight, some are smaller and some are larger, and some are equal to the parts of the sight itself. Those which are equal are imperceptible, and we call them transparent. The larger produce contraction, the smaller dilation in the sight exercising a power akin to that of hot and cold bodies on the flesh, or of astringent bodies on the tongue, or of those heating bodies which we turn pungent. White and black are similar effects of contraction and dilation in another sphere, and for this reason have a different appearance. Wherefore, we ought to term white that which dilates the visual ray, and the opposite of this is black. There is also a swifter motion of a different sort of fire, which strikes and dilates the ray of sight until it reaches the eyes, forcing a way through their passages and melting them, and eliciting from them a union of fire and water which we call tears, being itself an opposite fire which comes to them from an opposite direction. The inner fire flashes forth like lightning, and the outer finds a way in and is extinguished in the moisture and all sorts of colors are generated by the mixture this affection is termed dazzling and the object which produces it is called bright and flashing there is another sort of fire which is intermediate and which reaches and mingles with the moisture of the eye without flashing and in this the fire mingling with the ray of the moisture produces a color like blood to which we give the name of red a bright hue mingled with red and white gives the colour called auburn, Greek. The law of proportion, however, according to which the several colours are formed, even if a man knew, he would be foolish in telling, for he could not give any necessary reason, nor, indeed, any tolerable or probable explanation of them. Again, red, when mingled with black and white, becomes purple, but it becomes umber, Greek, when the colours are burnt as well as mingled, and the black is more thoroughly mixed with them. Flame color, Greek, is produced by a union of auburn and dun, Greek, and dun by an admixture of black and white. Pale yellow, Greek, by an admixture of white and auburn. White and bright meeting, and falling upon a full black, become dark blue, Greek, and when dark blue mingles with white, a light blue, Greek, color is formed, as flame-colour with black makes leek-green. Greek. There will be no difficulty in seeing how and by what mixtures the colours derived from these are made according to the rules of probability. He, however, who should attempt to verify all this by experiment, would forget the difference of the human and divine nature, for God only has the knowledge and also the power which are able to combine many things into one and again resolve the one into many but no man either is or ever will be able to accomplish either the one or the other operation. These are the elements, thus of necessity then subsisting, which the Creator of the fairest and best of created things associated with Himself, when He made the self-sufficing and most perfect God, using the necessary causes as His ministers in the accomplishment of His work, but Himself contriving the good in all His creations, Therefore we may distinguish two sorts of causes, the one divine and the other necessary, and may seek for the divine in all things, as far as our nature admits, with a view to the blessed life. But the necessary kind only for the sake of the divine, considering that without them, and when isolated from them, these higher things for which we look cannot be apprehended or received or in any way shared by us seeing then that we have now prepared for our use the various classes of causes which are the material out of which the remainder of our discourse must be woven just as wood is the material of the carpenter let us revert in a few words to the point at which we began and then endeavour to add on a suitable ending to the beginning of our tale as i said at first when all things were in disorder god created in each thing in relation to itself and in all things in relation to each other, all the measures and harmonies which they could possibly receive. For in those days, nothing had any proportion except by accident, nor did any of the things which now have names deserve to be named at all, as, for example, fire, water, and the rest of the elements. All these the Creator first set in order, and out of them he constructed the universe, which was a single animal. Comprehending in itself all other animals, mortal and immortal. Now, of the divine, he himself was the creator, but the creation of the mortal he committed to his offspring. And they, imitating him, received from him the immortal principle of the soul, and around this they proceeded to fashion a mortal body, and made it to be the vehicle of the soul, and constructed within the body a soul of another nature which was mortal subject to terrible and irresistible affections, first of all pleasure, the greatest incitement to evil, then pain, which deters from good, also rashness and fear, two foolish counsellors, anger hard to be appeased, and hope, easily led astray, these they mingled with irrational sense, and with all daring love, according to necessary laws, and so framed man wherefore fearing to pollute the divine any more than was absolutely unavoidable they gave to the mortal nature a separate habitation in another part of the body placing the neck between them to be the isthmus and boundary which they constructed between the head and breast to keep them apart and in the breast in what is termed the thorax they encased the mortal soul and as the one part of this was superior and the other inferior they divided the cavity of the thorax into two parts, as the women's and men's apartments are divided in houses, and placed the midriff to be a wall of partition between them. That part of the inferior soul, which is endowed with courage and passion and love's contention, they settled nearer the head, midway between the midriff and the neck, in order that it might be under the rule of reason, and might join with it in controlling and restraining the desires, when they are no longer willing of their own accord to obey the word of command issuing from the citadel the heart the knot of the veins and the fountain of the blood which races through all the limbs was set in the place of god that when the might of passion was roused by reason making proclamation of any wrong assailing them from without or being perpetrated by the desires within quickly the whole power of feeling in the body perceiving these commands and threats might obey and follow through every turn and alley and thus allow the principle of the best to have the command in all of them but the gods foreknowing that the palpitation of the heart in the expectation of danger and the swelling and excitement of passion was caused by fire formed and implanted as a support to the heart the lung which was in the first place soft and bloodless and also had within hollows like the pores of a sponge in order that by receiving the breath and the drink it might give coolness and the power of respiration, and alleviate the heat. Wherefore they cut the air-channels leading to the lung, and placed the lung about the heart as a soft spring, that, when passion was rife within, the heart, beating against the yielding body, might be cooled and suffer less, and might thus become more ready to join with passion in the service of reason the part of the soul which desires meats and drinks and the other things of which it has need by reason of the bodily nature they placed between the midriff and the boundary of the navel, contriving in all this region a sort of manger for the food of the body, and there they bounded down like a wild animal which was chained up with man, and must be nourished if man was to exist. They appointed this lower creation his place here, in order that he might be always feeding at the manger and have his dwelling as far as might be from the council-chamber, making as little noise and disturbance as possible, and permitting the best part to advise quietly for the good of the whole. And knowing that this lower principle in man would not comprehend reason, and even if, attaining to some degree of perception, would never naturally care for rational notions, but that it would be led away by phantoms and visions night and day, to be a remedy for this, God combined with it the liver, and placed it in the house of the lower nature, contriving that it should be solid and smooth and bright and sweet, and should also have a bitter quality, in order that the power of thought, which proceeds from the mind, might be reflected as in a mirror, which receives likenesses of objects and gives back images of them to the sight, and so might strike terror into their desires, when, making use of the bitter part of the liver to which it is akin, It comes threatening and invading, and diffusing this bitter element swiftly through the whole liver produces colors like bile, and contracting every part makes it wrinkled and rough, and twisting out of its right place, and contorting the lobe, and closing and shutting up the vessels and gates, causes pain and loathing, and the converse happens when some gentle inspiration of the understanding pictures images of an opposite character and allays the bile and bitterness by refusing to stir or touch the nature opposed to itself but by making use of the natural sweetness of the liver corrects all things and makes them to be right and smooth and free and renders the portion of the soul which resides about the liver happy and joyful enabling it to pass the night in peace and to practise divination in sleep inasmuch as it has no share in mind and reason for the authors of our being remembering the command of their father when he bade them create the human race as good as they could, that they might correct our inferior parts and make them to attain a measure of truth, placed in the liver the seed of divination. And herein is a proof that God has given the art of divination not to the wisdom, but to the foolishness of man. No man, when in his wits, attains prophetic truth and inspiration, but when he receives the inspired word, either his intelligence is enthralled in sleep, or he is demented by some distemper or possession, and he who would understand what he remembers to have been said, whether in a dream or when he was awake, by the prophetic and inspired nature, or would determine by reason the meaning of the apparitions which he has seen, and what indications they afford to this man or that, of past, present, or future good and evil, must first recover his wits but while he continues demented he cannot judge of the visions which he sees or the words which he utters the ancient saying is very true that only a man who has his wits can act or judge about himself and his own affairs and for this reason it is customary to appoint interpreters to be judges of their true inspiration some persons call them prophets they are quite unaware that they are only the expositors of dark sayings and visions, and are not to be called prophets at all, but only interpreters of prophecy. Such is the nature of the liver, which is placed as we have described in order that it may give prophetic intimations. During the life of each individual, these intimations are plainer, but after his death, the liver becomes blind, and the liver's oracles too obscure to be intelligible. The neighbouring organ, the spleen, is situated on the left-hand side, and is constructed with a view of keeping the liver bright and pure, like a napkin always ready prepared and at hand to clean the mirror. And hence, when any impurities arise in the region of the liver by reason of disorders of the body, the loose nature of the spleen, which is composed of a hollow and bloodless tissue, receives them all and clears them away, and when filled with the unclean matter, swells and festers but again when the body is purged, settles down into the same place as before and is humbled concerning the soul as to which part is mortal and which divine and how and why they are separated and where located if god acknowledges that we have spoken the truth then and then only can we be confident still we may venture to assert that what has been said by us is probable and will be rendered more probable by investigation Let us assume thus much. The creation of the rest of the body follows next in order, and this we may investigate in a similar manner, and it appears to be very meet that the body should be framed on the following principles. The authors of our race were aware that we should be intemperate in eating and drinking, and take a good deal more than was necessary or proper, by reason of gluttony. In order, then, that disease might not quickly destroy us, Unless our mortal race should perish without fulfilling its end, intending to provide against this, the gods made what is called the lower belly, to be a receptacle for the superfluous meat and drink, and formed the convolution of the bowels, so that the food might be prevented from passing quickly through and compelling the body to require more food, thus producing insatiable gluttony, and making the whole race an enemy to philosophy and music, and rebellious against the divinest elements within us. The bones and flesh, and other similar parts of us, were made as follows. The first principle of all of them was the generation of the marrow. For the bonds of life which unite the soul with the body are made fast there, and they are the root and foundation of the human race. The marrow itself is created out of other materials, God took such of the primary triangles as were straight and smooth, and were adapted by their perfection to produce fire and water and air and earth. These, I say, he separated from their kinds, and mingling them in due proportions with one another, made the marrow out of them to be a universal seed of the whole race of mankind. And in this seed he then planted and enclosed the souls, and in the original distribution gave to the marrow as many and various forms as the different kinds of souls were hereafter to receive. That which, like a field, was to receive the divine seed, he made round every way, and called that portion of the marrow brain, intending that, when an animal was perfected, the vessels containing this substance should be the head. But that which was intended to contain the remaining and mortal part of the soul, he distributed into figures at once round and elongated and he called them all by the name Marrow, and to these, as to anchors, fastening the bonds of the whole soul, he proceeded to fashion around them the entire framework of our body, constructing for the marrow, first of all, a complete covering of bone. Bone was composed by him in the following manner. Having sifted pure and smooth earth, he kneaded it and wetted it with marrow, and after that he put it into fire and then into water, and once more into fire, and again into water. In this way, by frequent transfers from one to the other, he made it insoluble by either. Out of this he fashioned, as in a lath, a globe made of bone, which he placed around the brain, and in this he left a narrow opening, and around the marrow of the neck and back he formed vertebrae, which he placed under one another like pivots, beginning at the head and extending through the whole of the trunk, Thus wishing to preserve the entire seed, he enclosed it in its stone-like casing, inserting joints, and using, in the formation of them, the power of the other or diverse as an intermediate nature, that they might have the motion and flexure. Then again, considering that the bone would be too brittle and inflexible, and when heated and again cooled would soon mortify and destroy the seed within, having this in view, he contrived the sinews and the flesh that so binding all the members together by the sinews, which admitted of being stretched and relaxed about the vertebrae, he might thus make the body capable of flexion and extension, while the flesh would serve as a protection against the summer heat, and against the winter cold, and also against falls, softly and easily yielding to external bodies, like articles made of felt, and containing in itself a warm moisture which in summer exudes and makes the surface damp, would impart a natural coolness to the whole body, and again in winter, by the help of this internal warmth, would form a very tolerable defence against the frost which surrounds it and attacks it from without. He who modelled us, considering these things, mixed earth with fire and water and blended them, and making a ferment of acid and salt, he mingled it with them, and formed soft and succulent flesh. As for the sinews, he made them of a mixture of bone and unfermented flesh, attempered so as to be in a mean, and gave them a yellow color, wherefore the sinews have a firmer and more glutinous nature than flesh, but a softer and moister nature than the bones. With these God covered the bones and marrow, binding them together by sinews, and then enshrouded them all in an upper covering of flesh the more living and sensitive of the bones he enclosed in the thinnest film of flesh, and those which had the least life within them in the thickest and most solid flesh. So again on the joints of the bones, where reason indicated that no more was required, he placed only a thin covering of flesh, that it might not interfere with the flexion of our bodies and make them unwieldy because difficult to move, and also that it might not, by being crowded and pressed and matted together, destroy sensation by reason of its hardness, and impair the memory and dull the edge of intelligence. Wherefore also the thighs and the shanks and the hips, and the bones of the arms and the forearms, and other parts which have no joints, and the inner bones which, on account of the rarity of the soul and the marrow, are destitute of reason, all these are abundantly provided with flesh, but such as have mind in them are generally less fleshy except where the Creator has made some part solely of flesh in order to give sensation, as, for example, the tongue. But commonly this is not the case, for the nature which comes into being and grows up in us by a law of necessity does not admit of the combination of solid bone and much flesh with acute perceptions. More than any other part the framework of the head would have had them if they could have coexisted, and the human race... Having a strong and fleshy and sinewy head would have had a life twice or many times as long as it now has, and also more healthy and free from pain. But our creators, considering whether they should make a longer-lived race which was worse, or a shorter-lived race which was better, came to the conclusion that every one ought to prefer a shorter span of life which was better to a longer one which was worse and therefore they covered the head with thin bone, but not with flesh and sinews, since it had no joints, and thus the head was added, having more wisdom and sensation than the rest of the body, but also being in every man far weaker. For these reasons, and after this manner, God placed the sinews at the extremity of the head in a circle round the neck, and glued them together by the principle of likeness, and fastened the extremities of the jaw-bones to them below the face, and the other sinews he dispersed throughout the body fastening limb to limb the framers of us framed the mouth as now arranged having teeth and tongue and lips with a view to the necessary and the good contriving the way in for necessary purposes the way out for the best purposes for that is necessary which enters in and gives food to the body but the river of speech which flows out of a man and ministers to the intelligence is the fairest and noblest of all streams. Still, the head could neither be left a bare frame of bones on account of the extremes of heat and cold in the different seasons, nor yet be allowed to be wholly covered, and so become dull and senseless by reason of an overgrowth of flesh. The fleshy nature was not therefore wholly dried up, but a large sort of peel was parted off and remained over, which is now called the skin.' this met and grew by the help of the cerebral moisture and became the circular envelopment of the head and the moisture rising up under the sutures watered and closed in the skin upon the crown forming a sort of knot the diversity of the sutures was caused by the power of the courses of the soul and of the food and the more these struggled against one another the more numerous they became and fewer if the struggle were less violent this skin the divine power pierced all round with fire and out of the punctures which were thus made the moisture issued forth and the liquid and heat which was pure came away and a mixed part which was composed of the same material as the skin and had a fineness equal to the punctures and was borne up by its own impulse and extended far outside the head but being too slow to escape was thrust back by the external air and rolled up underneath the skin where it took root thus the hair sprang up in the skin being akin to it because it is like threads of leather but rendered harder and closer through the pressure of the cold by which each hair while in process of separation from the skin is compressed and cooled wherefore the creator formed the head hairy making use of the causes which i have mentioned and reflecting also that instead of flesh the brain needed the hair to be a light covering or guard which would give shade in summer and shelter in winter and at the same time would not impede our quickness of perception from the combination of sinew skin and bone in the structure of the finger there arises a triple compound which when dried up takes the form of one hard skin partaking of all three natures and was fabricated by these second causes but designed by mind which is the principal cause with an eye to the future for our creators well knew that women and other animals would some day be framed out of men, and they further knew that many animals would require the use of nails for many purposes, wherefore they fashioned in men at their first creation the rudiments of nails. For this purpose, and for these reasons, they caused skin, hair, and nails to grow at the extremities of the limbs. End of part six.